Welcome to another Psych Matters podcast from the Royal Australian and New Zealand College of Psychiatrists. Psych Matters is a series of discussions on training and practice issues facing trainees and fellows of the college. Over the last few election cycles, the RANZCP board and its presidents have pursued a conscious strategy of increasing efforts to communicate clear priorities to members and encouraging feedback on those priorities and other important issues. The COVID pandemic prevented delivery of the presidential address as a centrepiece of the annual College Congress, leaving President John Allen to deliver an address at the virtual AGM in June. The address acknowledged the ongoing effects of the pandemic and the significant social disruption, but also highlighted the strong position of the RANZCP due to these years of strategic consolidation and a strong collaboration between staff and members. In this episode of Psych Matters, Dr. Andrew Amos interviews Associate Professor John Allen about the board's unchanged ambition to promote the health and welfare of the psychiatric community in Australasia. I'm Andrew Amos, and today I'm speaking with Associate Professor John Allen of the University of Queensland, President of the Royal Australian and New Zealand College of Psychiatrists. President Allen has been Chief Psychiatrist of both Queensland and New South Wales Health, and has been extremely active in service development, including programs supporting Indigenous, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, and over a couple of decades in North Queensland. President Allen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Well, your presidential address is being published in the December issue of Australasian Psychiatry, and it covers a broad range of topics. But I thought I'd start by asking you to comment on the unusual way it was delivered. Well, normally a presidential address is given on the Monday night of Congress when we have a reward ceremony and we welcome in the new members of the college and then we honour those people who've done fantastic things. Unfortunately, this time we didn't have a college congress, we didn't have an award ceremony, but I thought it was really important that we actually still had the address. So I took over some time in the annual general meeting, which normally people like to be very short and get over with very quickly so they go off to the dinner. But um, as we weren't having a dinner and as it was virtual, I thought it was reasonable that we have an address then. Um, and it's been really important to have, I think, as well. The pandemic has obviously been a major unexpected factor in your presidency, but um, I was hoping you could expand on the idea in your address that the college benefited from a strong position pre-COVID to deliver key supports for our stakeholders. Yeah, look, thanks for that. I think that we've been from a couple of things. One is that we actually knew what we were about. So we know that our key business is about advocacy. We know that it's about education and we know that it's about member support. And when you think about it, all of those things were really strongly affected by COVID, but we had good structures and we had a very good support structure from the college staff, the setup, the CEO and others, the directors. But also we had very strong committees and a structure that allowed us to pull people in, get a range of views. And when people had good ideas, we we're actually able to respond and use them um, fairly quickly. Have we relied a lot on the uh, the online presence, so things like the uh, centre where you can go to get information about the pandemic, for example? Yeah, I think we've all changed enormously, haven't we? Things we didn't trust before, we actually have to trust now because we have no choice. Um, and I've been really impressed by the way that people have responded to that and have put up their, their idea, put up stuff, put up publications. Uh, they've been edited and uh, approved in a way that, you know, probably meets the college rigorous standards about making sure we're not getting disinformation. There's a lot of disinformation there about COVID. There's a lot of changing information as well. So, you know, I've been really impressed with the way that we've been able to, you know, have those words agile and adapt, but that's what we've had to do. What ongoing challenges are there for the board and the college from the pandemic? 
I think the biggest one facing us at the moment is the is about education and about training for people. We, you know, we our, our usual model, which is very much face to face, that the way that we would normally work would be people would attend conferences, they'd go to meetings, they would join study groups, they would often do most of that face to face. The whole idea of uh, supervision is often face to face, but we've had to adapt that to telehealth. We've had to change the ideas of meetings to um, to Zoom and to other to other platforms do them virtually and then when it comes to actually progressing through your training uh, how to do exams because normally we would have an exam where the examiners and the candidate face each other we've done away in the past now with with live patients but we've had you know simulated patients in the OSCE exam and so on and so we we've really had to find a new way to do that and to get that both COVID safe digitally enabled and fair has been a real challenge but we're about to embark on that first digital OSCE, which I'm really looking forward to. And it's got its own challenges because you have to limit the numbers. We've got to make sure that we maintain the right standards. We've got to not be unfair to anybody. We've got to, you know, a whole lot of contingencies around it. Plus, we've got a lot of people knocking at the door who need to pass because there are other obligations about what we do for the community. If we aren't producing more psychiatrists, there's a problem for the community because we actually need more psychiatrists to deal with the issues in the pandemic. So it's a bit of a... You know, a cycle, a catch-tail cycle, isn't it? Well, do you agree that there's some opportunities, although, I mean, overall it's a difficult situation. I, for example, am a director of training in a regional area in northern Queensland, and uh, even things like having everybody on VC seems to have improved outcomes for regional trainees because presenters have to actually focus on reaching out to people virtually rather than just focusing on the people in the room. Yeah, and I think we've actually all had to change our habits, haven't we? That's probably been good to make sure that we, we are able to engage people. And you have to think a lot about how you engage someone on the other side of the screen because you don't have as many visual clues and you don't have the same. You haven't got the banter before and afterwards, which is what I often rely on to build relationships with people. So you've got to find a way to have the banter in the room and the facts and be respectful and, you know, and run the meeting. So it, it's challenging our skills as communicators. It challenges our skills as psychiatrists to, to make those connections. Has there been a big impact on college staff, particularly working from home in uh, Melbourne in the middle of the pandemic? Yeah, look, I think it's been quite hard. As, as, as we're aware, there's been quite, uh, I mean, two things. One is we have to congratulate the Victorians on actually beating the pandemic at this stage. You know, when we went back into that lockdown, there's a lot of doom and gloom. But it's actually been, in terms of beating the pandemic, it's been world's best. In terms of the effects of lockdown on people and the psychological effects, it's actually been quite trying. So we've been working very hard to support the staff. We expected that they would be back sooner than this. And, um, you know, the, the CEO, Andrew Peters, and and the, the senior people have made a really big effort in supporting staff. I think people are really feeling isolated at times. Um, I've certainly addressed a number of meetings and messages to the staff. Really grateful for their continued efforts. But it's been it's just been very difficult for everybody, hasn't it? Look, I certainly agree it's been a great effort. Um, some of our New Zealand contributors on previous podcasts have challenged the world's best title, but uh, certainly appreciate what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the latest one this month, isn't it? I mean, they were the world's best uh, until then. I, and uh, I think so. We've got to have two of the world's best vying for a competition is, uh, is something that we can, we can be proud of. Uh, your address mentions outgoing board members Peter Jenkins and Margaret Imer, who I found exemplary for their courteous and effective leadership over a number of years. 
How have you found being the first among equals in the college board? Uh, look, I think the college board is what that word college is collegiate. Um, so I'm there to help us get to the right place. And, you know, it's a leadership thing and you've got to respect that. But, but for example, Peter and Margaret were originally elected to the board seven years ago. Actually served a three-year term to start with to get things set up. They've done an enormous job in what they've set up. The, the reforms in education that Margaret's overseen and the, the whole steadiness she brought to the ship uh, has been fantastic. And Peter has produced an enormous amount of work in, in the policy and practice area. That you know, it's it's hard to believe how many position statements we've actually produced, how many government uh, inquiries and other things we've responded to at an enormous rate. So. They have set an exemplary uh, as you know, calm, collected, inclusive, academic, rigorous, uh, you know, incredible, just incredible. Uh, really greatly missed. Um, you know, their replacements are, are doing well, but um, you know, they've got a lot to live up to. I've always been curious about the relationship between the president and the president-elect, and COVID seems to have resulted in a fairly useful division of labour between you and and uh, Vinay Lakra. So have the challenges of the pandemic changed this dynamic at all? I think it's been, look, has been fantastic, right? So really, Vinay stepped up to the plate because when things first hit, like many other college fellows, I had an enormous COVID response in my own job and, and, and the work that we all had to do, as we all did, and then, of course, had to, to leave the college. So I was really grateful that Vinay was able to step up beside me and we shared some of the duties. And I actually said, Vinay, look, can you please take this over? You're, you're doing really well in this area. His work that, that he did with the federal government in the Medicare items and getting the, the telehealth items has been phenomenal. So, you know, I really just thank him for that. And he put in two or three phone calls a day on some of that stuff at the, at the critical times as well as various meetings. And I just wasn't able to contribute to that and to oversee all the other stuff that we were doing. So I'm really proud of the way that he and other board members and a number of the uh, chairs from various sections and the branch chairs and the New Zealand national chair as well. That, that you know, so many people have actually stepped up to take on parts of that of that work. There was a flurry of activity in the early phases, and I just saw myself as the coordinator and the kind of policy setter, um, and what are the standards we want. But really, there were so many ideas that we had to take on board, and so many things we had to respond to. Right. I, I mean, I hope that the president elect uh, gets to continue that. Other colleges use the president elect to do all that policy work. Uh, but we have certainly done a lot of a lot of work. Indeed, um, Professor Ernest Hunter has appeared on a couple of these podcasts, and the College and Board seem to have really expanded on his efforts to reach out to support our regional neighbours, from Pacific Islanders to Southeast Asia generally. But what would you view as the most successful developments in this area? Well, look, even before COVID, we had made that a priority. I'm sure we'll talk about that. So that was one of my priorities as becoming president: that we actually take up our responsibilities seriously. We've had really good support for a number of Pacific and Asian nations, it, it, often by individual efforts rather than a, a, the combined college effort. So we've put together a Pacifica group to steer our efforts to make sure we do that. We've entered into a partnership with Fiji National University to actually help improve their psychiatry training program, so to, to do work with them to, to produce a master's in psychiatry that will apply across about 10 or so countries in the Pacific. And uh, people like Ernest have been helping us with that and others have been helping us with that. So I'm really, I'm really pleased about that work. When COVID came, we also did a lot of work with the World Psychiatric Association. We helped them get up a small nations grants program and that sort of psychiatric relief. And I'm really grateful to Helen Herman, 
who's actually involved us a lot in that work, but we were able to donate some money, do some you know work around how that the governance of that should be arranged, and we've been actually able to put some money in the Solomon Islands uh, and uh, Vanuatu and other places, and we're looking to do work in Papua New Guinea and other places as well. So we've actually offered monetary, you know, small amounts of money for good projects that help in COVID responses, because often in some of those Asian, in some of those Pacific countries, the entire health budget has just been taken up by their COVID response. There's nothing left over for mental health, so a little bit can go a long way. Um, and I, I really think that that's a thing that we need to be doing in the future. I'm also looking to the the foundation, the new, the newly revamped College Foundation under Beth O'Brien, to uh, support other countries and support those sort of developments in psychiatry. So I know that we've got a large number of people in our workforce. Uh, who want to help, who want to volunteer, especially people like me or, you know, getting a bit older, or even younger ones, I suppose, who, who want to give back. And uh, we need to make sure that we are helping people to give back in a way that really is meaningful for those countries. Well, indeed, I think one of the big features of the interview with Ernest was the, the leverage, if you like, that small amounts of money and particularly the mentorship of providing a training program, for example, had a huge impact on the ground. Uh, look, the, the board has an ambitious agenda, which is coalesced around six key project areas of suicide prevention, psychiatric workforce, uh, first people's mental health, well-being and alcohol, rural remote mental health and supporting our Pacific neighbours. Um, these college podcasts have addressed many of the issues, including a recent ep- episode on systematic approaches to suicide prevention. Um, but uh, which parts of the agenda will be prominent as we transition to 2021? Well, hopefully they all will. I mean, there are priorities we actually set before COVID. But in fact, it turns out that they're all incredibly important um, as well because of COVID and, you know, and, and other things. So to me, you know, the issue about suicide and well-being um, has been raised a lot about the potential economic effect of COVID. I don't need to tell psychiatrists about the, the risks to that. And there's been a predicted rise in suicide. Also, when we look back on the college, we didn't really have a very coherent uh, public-facing policy about suicide. I mean, psychiatrists would say suicide prevention and response and, and helping people is a core part of our business, and we would all think we were well-trained and we that's what we would do. But, in fact, when you looked at our public-facing documents, we didn't really have a particular prominence about that in our position. When you look at our training, we just kind of – it's all in the training, but it's not spelled out that's the particular way we do it. We are certainly interested in service improvement and reform and advocacy, which is where the things like the work of Cathy and others in reorganising services is really important. And I just wanted to make it really clear that as we were advocating, we needed a strong position from which we could advocate to say that we are really experts in the in the clinical aspects of this as well as many others, and we wanted to have a platform from which we could really advocate for people and advocate for services. So that was so suicide. I thought was really important. Following on from the interview with Cathy, one of the things we discussed was the framework they're using in the Gold Coast under Cathy's leadership is the zero suicide framework. And we discussed the the importance of the message uh, in leadership and particularly addressing past nihilism and defeatism, which has led to people perhaps not thinking you can do anything about this sort of problem, but that there might be a little bit of uh, mediation between the positive message of zero suicide and potential misunderstanding of that. And just wondering how, I mean, the college obviously has a large leadership role without that direct on the ground impact. And just wondering about your thoughts about that. 
Yeah, look, that's an interesting question because there are a number of people who still think that zero suicide is too aspirational and gives a wrong view of what's actually quite a serious problem. Whereas, again, of course, if you speak to Cathy, and I would probably be more in the Cathy camp, that we have to, to make a stand. We have to say this is preventable. We can change this. We have ways of dealing with it. And, and you know, we, we don't accept that the suicide's okay and that one's not. We have to we have to stand against it all. So I think we're going through a period of transformation in that. And one of the problems that I think for the college, and it's a little bit hard to say, is that sometimes our clinical realism is interpreted by others in a way that thinks that we're too negative. You know, we, we, we're, we're realists because we know the buck stops with us in those clinical situations and we have to make those hard decisions about these things. So we have to accept what what happens. But some people interpret that as as being uncaring or that, you know, we're, we're willing to not change enough. And I think we have to present the image that, no, we're actually incredibly important and interested in this and that we want to we want to be leaders. We don't want to be followers and we want to be a part of that change. And also that we have an incredible amount of skill and knowledge of people who actually understand the true reality of what happened. And if we can just, you know, make that shift 5% each year or whatever, then that's fantastic. Um, so, yeah, it's a big. It's going to be a really big piece going on, especially as we respond to COVID. Look, I think I think Kathy made the point that it becomes a conversation that you engage with over time with different different parts of the community. And the college, of course, has set up the membership engagement committee, which is explicitly designed to foster that sort of communication with stakeholders. So I think we're definitely moving in the right direction. Coming out of that discussion, one of the uh, six key areas is a psychiatric workforce. And this is a pretty complicated area, lots of reports, uh, such as the Productivity Commission coming out recently. And just wondering if you have any feeling about how successful we might be at, at improving both the overall number of psychiatrists and then the distribution, for example, in regional rural areas. Yeah, look, I think that's a really big, important point. Again, a lot of work before COVID. So we had reports that showed that maldistribution. There was... You know, about 20 points in that government document about how things might change, many of those affecting rural and remote. We made submissions around that. That work slowed down a bit in the response to COVID is now back on the table. So we know that there's quite a maldistribution in rural and remote areas. We know there's a lack of child psychiatrists. There's probably a lack of old age psychiatrists as well. Um, and when we start to look at a lot of subspecialties, there's, there's, a, there's an emerging problem in terms of having a workforce or people skilled who are actually in the right place at the right time and then the access to those for everybody. So the college's got to deal with that. We've also got to deal with an issue in the college, which is that if we have increasing subspecialization, we lose some of that general psychiatry impetus. And the federal government is very much in favor of generalists rather than super specialists. So we have to walk a bit of a line to say that, yes, we retain our general skills as well as those subspecialist skills because we need to actually show that to get funding and other things and decisions out of them, we have to actually show that we've got the coverage, not just the the, the single interest group. So I think that's going to, um, again, work out. There's a, there's a there's two things that happen. There's a medical workforce issue and there's a general mental health workforce issue because there's quite a – for us to do our job properly, there's actually a whole lot of other professions that are required as well. There's a shortage and an ageing of medical, mental health nursing workforce. Um, I've just been on a call with the president of the Australian Psychological Society. I still think there's not enough psychologists and the issues of training and levels and standards and ability are one that, that, that we need to address together. So there's our partners that we work with. There's the peer workforce that needs to come in and we need to change our practice to incorporate all. So there's a lot of things like that. And 
you know, Indigenous health workers and, and so on. So there's, there's that, plus there's the sheer weight of numbers and the leadership role that we need to play and how we can adapt to that leadership role. So we need to think about whether or not, for example, we need to give other doctors a diploma in psychiatry to help assist us where we can't make up the numbers in rural places where that rural generalist uh, and you know, linking those people into college and mentoring the supervision rather than just letting it flow and not having any college uh, involvement in those services. So there's a lot of challenges for us in the future. And I'm really, I was looking forward to them before COVID. I'm still looking forward to them now in the short time I've got left. Hopefully we can make some erosion. We've put a submission to the federal government about how we might build up some of those programs, how we might, um, you know, advance rural psychiatry. And I'm, I'm really hopeful that we'll get some response uh, because people know that it has to change. That You know, the Productivity Commission is going to be out in two weeks, I hope. Um, and the funding models are going to say that we have to change and that we have to be absolutely ready to give the ideas when when that comes. Indeed. One of the areas uh, that is prioritised by the board is First Peoples mental health, and there's probably an element of workforce in that as well, given the distribution of uh, population. But also, I know that the college has been working on, for example, supporting people with Indigenous background coming through medical school and becoming psychiatrists, for example. So uh, how is the board addressing this priority? So, look, what we've done is at a number of levels. When you look at the workforce, we're, problem, we're obviously very short in terms of parity. If we actually looked at the population parity, we would need many, many more people of First Nations background to be psychiatrists. And ultimately, that should be our aim. Similarly, for people of called status, you know, culturally listed diverse, we need to look at that as well. But but I think for Australia and New Zealand, looking at that, Indigenous status is really, really important. So we've done a couple of things. One is that we've tried to make, we've, we've listened to the trainees, we've listened to the psychiatrists who are of First Nations background. And what they want is not a different system, but they want better support within the system. So we put in a number of bursaries, a number of financial, but also mentoring supports for trainees, also for early career psychiatrists to, to help them with that. We uh, have made it clear that we want to increase the numbers. We want to want to do that. And we're really stepping back now even before you become a psychiatrist. So we've gone to the Psychiatry Interest Forum with the medical students. We've actually got more Indigenous medical students than we've got psychiatrists and trainees combined. We've got uh, nearly 100 Indigenous medical students in our Psychiatry Interest Forum. And if we can convert... You know, 10 or 20 a year of those into, into psychiatry trainees and then get them to become psychiatrists, we can overcome this problem without, without too much difficulty over, you know, over the next four or five years. I mean, you could say, I want it to all happen next year, but that's not going to happen. And we probably haven't got the systems to support that and the placements and so on. But if we could actually get 10 to 20 people in Australia and New Zealand, Australia and similar number in New Zealand each year, then we'll actually address that problem. Uh, you know, in, in, within an immediate future. And as we build that group and they can help and be part of that mentoring and and support and build our knowledge about that, we will do well. So I, I feel really strongly that we'll be successful in that. Do, do you have any final thoughts before we draw things to a close? Well, the other thing that's on that priority list is about wellbeing and, and alcohol. We, we wanted to start with a media campaign about the effects of alcohol on mental health and to try a bit be unique about what psychiatrists have to offer in in that addiction space, or you know, and and more generally as well, because we know that uh, alcohol use, you know, it's the most common 
whose drug has got the biggest effect on your mental health. So we wanted to get that up there. We've struggled a bit in the in the COVID time to get all that together. We're just in a position now. We're about to launch a position paper and then to do a bit of a media blitz. And again, COVID is one of those things where there's a lot of talk about alcohol use and uh, the the dangers of drugs and the lockdown and COVID, but not a whole lot of action happening around it. And uh, so we need to be leading that conversation. So look, um, and the other thing I just wanted to add was that, uh, as I probably said in the address and other things, and I, and I say continuously, I have been really impressed with the response of college members to to difficulties. You know, whether it's been supporting other people, whether it's setting up special clinics, whether it's giving advice, whether it's whether it's doing things to help us get ready and respond. We've had an enormous response. We've just had um, so many people who really care about stuff to do things, and I. You know, I say that in, in true reality, not to, like some politicians, I say that in true reality. We've had a lot of people who've done a lot of good work. I just want to thank them for that. Indeed. Look, I've been a member of the Membership Engagement Committee for a number of years, and I think over this period of time, you do start to get a feeling of an emerging community uh, where people are, are uh, joining together to combat the adversity that we face. So I'd certainly, certainly agree with what you've said. All right, uh, look, I'd like to finish by thanking President Allen for joining the podcast today and invite listeners to visit the RANZCP website to access the December 2020 issue of Australasian Psychiatry for the Presidential Address. Thanks also to David Beale behind the control desk for recording, editing and organising the Psych Matters series. They say that managing psychiatrists is like herding cats, but David seems to take it in stride. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Psych Matters. Feel free to share it with others and keep an eye out for future episodes. Psych Matters is produced by the Royal Australian and New Zealand College of Psychiatrists.